Weekly Appellate Report for September 8, 2017, the Daily Journal's weekly podcast regarding salient appellate and constitutional law issues. I'm Brian Cardile. This week we'll hear from a Los Angeles Deputy District Attorney and the San Francisco Public Defender on the emergent issue of bail reform and in particular an often divisive element within it, pre-trial computer-generated risk assessment scores meant to aid judges making the decision whether or not to detain arrestees awaiting trial. Proponents of bail reform argue that the current system hinges a defendant's pretrial release or detention primarily and disproportionately on whether or not that defendant can post a bond, often a struggle for indigent arrestees who reform proponents contend often have no choice but to wait several months for trials on low-level misdemeanors while, meanwhile, their lives and jobs and living arrangements are all thrown into jeopardy. Thus, proponents argue that the pretrial detention decision should mostly depend on the sort of public safety risk a defendant poses if released awaiting trial and whether a defendant poses a a likely flight risk. But how best to determine those risks has been a subject of some debate. One tool commonly used in jurisdictions that are moving away from a cash bail system, including San Francisco, is a computer-generated score that weighs, in some proprietary fashion, different variables meant to determine a defendant's overall risk if released. Proponents of using such a tool value its dispassion and objectiveness, its theoretical freedom from the types of biases human arbiters might possess, but critics are wary of an inscrutable equation taking over the job of duly appointed judges, and worry that a miscalibrated algorithm could lead to improper release decisions and even tragedy, as happened recently in San Francisco when a defendant was, in accordance with an assessment score recommendation, released pre-trial though he had just been arrested on a gun charge and for violating probation arising from a recent breaking and entering felony. Shortly after his release, it's now alleged the defendant murdered a 71-year-old San Francisco man. Killing casts fresh doubts on a reformed bail system that incorporates these risk assessment scores. We'll hear today from Los Angeles Deputy District Attorney Eric Sadal, who's also the Vice President of the Los Angeles Association of Deputy District Attorneys. He's among the cohort of skeptics when it comes to computer-generated scores. And we'll hear also from San Francisco Public Defender Jeff Adachi. He's been a vocal proponent of bill reform generally and also is a believer in the usefulness of risk assessment scores being a part of a modern pre-trial detention decision-making process. Before hearing from our guests, though, don't forget that CLE credit is available to podcast listeners. to find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. With that then, let's welcome in Los Angeles Deputy District Attorney Eric Sadal, Mr. Sadal, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Discussing the, the bail reform issue and specifically quantitative algorithms determining the ways in which uh, defendants may pose dangers if released pretrial. Uh, to start out, could we talk about the way that pretrial detention decisions are made in your office in Los Angeles County? How exactly do uh, does the LA County system determine who is released uh, pretrial and who's kept in jail? Well, you know, the, the decision about the bail schedule and and how much someone's going to have to post for bail, that's all made up by the judges. And the judges of Los Angeles County you know, determine the bail schedule, and the individual judges will look at a particular defendant and make a determination as to how serious the crime is, look at the bail schedule, and make a determination whether that person should actually have to post bail from that bail schedule. And sometimes they'll deviate from that, um, you know, either they'll go down or they'll go up, but they, generally they, the judges, for the most part, follow it. Now, I think one of the things that's misunderstood in Los Angeles County versus other places in the country is that we generally do not put low-level offenders 
in custody. So if you look at the population of Los Angeles County Jail, very few of those people will be there for misdemeanors. And of the people who are there for misdemeanors, it's generally domestic violence misdemeanors. It's generally uh, people who have a history of failing to appear. Uh, in other words, they're not showing up to court. They have not shown up to court in the past. That's the current population that's, uh, that's there for the lower level uh, misdemeanors. The vast majority of people in Los Angeles County Jail are there on serious violent felonies. In other words, crimes against other persons using weapons um, or you know, by means of their gang, assaults, child molestation, uh, sexual offenders. Those are the people that are generally in our county jail system right now. There's been a scare tactic by, done by the bail reform movement to make it sound like, you know, all these you know, poor families are being destroyed and, and uh, they're losing their homes because of high bail. That's, that's not true in Los Angeles County. I can't speak it for other parts of the state, um, but you've always heard about cases like in Ferguson where, you know, people were being placed in, into custody for a $3,000 bail. The sheriff of L.A. County generally releases anyone whose bail amount is under $25,000. And that really then leads, when you look at most people are in L.A. County jail, are, are there for offenses over 50000 That means serious or violent felonies. Just to clarify, you mean that defendants are released with or without posting a bond in those instances? Or are you just saying that the bail is lower for folks that have a, a nonviolent type misdemeanor offense? Oh, it's not just that it's lower, it's that the sheriff will release them. Uh, it, because it's not just the judge who makes a determination as to bail, but even after the judge makes a determination as to bail, you know, the, the sheriff doesn't have to keep them in custody. They have a lot of discretion as well. So, you know, you have, you have two rather progressive institutions here in L.A. County, the judiciary and also the sheriff's department. Um, you know, they're not interested in and putting low-level offenders in, in their custody facilities. They're much more interested in keeping people who are, who are violent off the streets. And so, again, we, when, we, when we look at the population that we're actually talking about, and that's the pretrial population, because, you know, you can't look at the whole population of, of county jail. You have to look at what, on this issue, just the pretrial. Most of those people in, in, the pretrial, in pretrial detention are not there for misdemeanors. I think the misdemeanor population is about 10%. And of that, they're there for things of higher bail for misdemeanors, which means that they're there generally for DUIs and uh, domestic violence cases. Notwithstanding that you have written that uh, with uh, the current bail system, there are some problems that can be identified. One you've written about is that the determination as to who gets out, if, if you are talking about defendants that must post a bond, obviously the, the amount of money that that defendant has will have some say as to whether they're getting out, regardless of their threat to the public or their likelihood to not appear for their trial. And I think you've written that um, bail might let uh, folks out that probably should not be uh, free prior to trial. Uh, do those sort of sum up your thoughts as to the, the current bail system? What are some of the problems that, that you think exist with uh, the system as it as it exists now? Right now, there's there, in our state constitution, there is a there is um, a mandate bail. And except for certain types of cases, uh, the most common type of case where it's not considered a bailable offense is a death penalty case. So if you're being charged with it, you know, a double homicide and it's a, you 
you know, special circumstance murder, you, you won't get released. There's no, there's no mechanism for your release. But in the vast majority of cases, you're allowed to post bail. And that's, unfortunately, that's a constitutional requirement. And the reason why I say unfortunately, because I think it's antiquated. I mean, to, you know, to somehow say, you know, you're not going to pose a risk to society because, you know, you can post bail doesn't really help on the public safety angle. It may help in terms of getting you re- to return to court, um, and it's going to help you. It's going to help in terms of getting you to return to court for, um, you know, a non-serious offense where you're not going to spend that much time in custody. But bail in itself doesn't protect the public. Now, the way it does protect the public is that bail is higher for you know certain types of offenses like murder. The minimum bail for murder is two million dollars. And then there's all these special allegations. If you use a gun, it goes up. So the way that we kind of protect the public is that bail becomes very high for the most violent offenses. I don't see how that, other than making it high, I don't see how it protects the public if the person has the means of, of getting that, that type of money. So, and a good example is, and I, and I have a case right on point. There's a guy who fled our jurisdiction we had extradited him. We had found him years later. We extradited him. We brought him back. You know, we wanted him not to be able to post bail uh, or do it at a very high rate. The judge lowered the statutory bail amount. He bailed out, and then at the arraignment, after he was, you know, we heard, uh, the ju- a judge heard the evidence and found that he was there was probable cause to hold him at the arraignment. He heard that we had changed the charges, and it was now a life charge, and he fled the jurisdiction again. You know, and yeah, he's going to lose his bail, but he doesn't care because he'd rather flee the jurisdiction and live somewhere else than have to spend the rest of his life in prison. And I think that you know that's that's where bail seems to be antiquated. You know, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do, which is protect the public and make sure that people return. Will it make people return on certain cases? Yes. Will it make people uh, have the ability to flee if it's a serious, you know, it's a very serious case where they're looking at a long time? Yes. You know, that's that's where I have an issue with bail. And I think in other jurisdictions, I would have an issue with bail if we imposed high bail for common misdemeanors that are, you know, where, you know, we're talking about people who are not violent when we're talking about people who are not, um, you know, who have some connections to the community and are not a flight risk. Yeah, I would have a problem with bail. I have problems with when bail is exercised for that purpose because we don't live in a country where, you know, you should suffer just because you're poor and you can't, you know, you're going to be placed in custody on a, on a low-level offense. Uh, we, you know, we don't, want, we don't want that type of society. Fortunately, we do not have that problem in Los Angeles County. It is those sorts of cases that kind of create the rallying cry for a, a nationwide movement towards a, a bail system or a pretrial release system that doesn't depend on a defendant's uh, bank account. Um, as it pertains to that that idea, generally, uh, a system where defendants are released based primarily and perhaps solely on their the danger they present to the public and the likelihood that they might leave the jurisdiction um, – and not relating at all to whether or not they can post a particular um, bond. Um, what are your thoughts uh, on that 
that movement and that approach to like taking the, the, the money out of the equation? If we change the constitution of a state and, um, you know, get rid of a, a money system and just do it on a risk assessment system, I don't think that we would have too much, too many problems with that. The problem is you have to change the constitution. You can't just do this by, you know, by the normal legislative process. It has to be done constitutionally. But yeah, I think if we were to go more towards what the, how the federal government does it, in terms of the federal judiciary, and you do more of a risk assessment that's made by the judge, the judge looks at the record and, and presumes the charge is true and says, hey, you know, this guy's a risk. We're not going to let him go. Uh, I, 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 don't th- I don't see how any reasonable mind would have a problem with that type of system. As you say, the, the higher money bail sort of do the work that you think the, the California Constitution doesn't uh, by having high bail amounts keep folks in for um, serious alleged crimes. Right. So the con- because the Constitution allows for bail, if you want to make sure that public safety is ensured, you have to have higher bail. And that's, that's, that's why murder is a $2 million bail uh, amount or um, – most life offenses are a million dollars because you know you're trying to make sure that they return and you're trying to make sure uh, that the amounts are high enough where you can pretty much detain them. Okay, now this this whole this topic has been uh, fermenting and percolating around the country, and it, it's been brought to the forefront in California for an unfortunate reason. A couple of weeks ago in San Francisco, a defendant who had been in custody for a, a gun charge that had some priors for burglary was let out on bail with um, some pretrial check-in type uh, services, but uh, was let out and San Francisco uses a um, largely a non-cash system and essentially just assesses the, the risk a certain defendant might pose. And specifically, one method used to determine the risk defendants pose uh, is a computer algorithm. Um, this particular algorithm, it includes a, a number of factors, but it specifically excludes things like employment history, race, education, in an attempt to uh, ostensibly make it an ob- objective type of risk assessment tool. Um, of course, the, the sad part of the story is after being released, the defendant, Lamonte Mims, is alleged to have killed a man, Edward French. Um, and so now so he's, he's back in custody. As far as these computer-generated type public safety algorithms go, um, maybe taking the, the events of the past few weeks out of the equation for a second, um, what were your thoughts as to the, the utility these could serve in a, the, the criminal justice system? You know, when you give a judge a crutch, they're going to use it. And the algorithm is the crutch. It becomes the, it will become the sole determining factor for whether a person is released or not released. And that abandons the main job of a judge, which is to make a judgment and, you know, use their own judgment to make a determination as to who should stay in and who should stay out. When it comes to, you know, judges usually start off their career in a misdemeanor court, and then they get elevated to a felony court, and then they get elevated more, you know, to higher and higher uh, cases, depending on how good the judge is. 
those are the people I want making this, this, these types of determinations because they have experience. They, they have a lot of experience. They know what they're doing. And we, again, I'm not going to speak about other states, but in California, we have a very diverse group of judges, very smart judges, judges who represent the community and the community's value system. Um, you know, for the most part, rather progressive judges. Those are the people who should be making the call, not a computer algorithm. And if you have the algorithm and they, they're going to, they're going to be inclined to follow it. Why? Mm -hmm. Because it's, it's hard to, it's hard to fight against something that is couched in science. Now, do, does anyone actually know how the algorithm functions? No, because it's proprietary and they're not going to release uh, the information about how the algorithm makes its calculation. And the, and the MIMS case is a great example of this because the judge had everything. They had the rap sheet. They had they knew the criminal record of the uh, of the defendant. And yet, despite the fact that he was on uh, probation, despite the fact that it was a gun charge, this guy was released. Now, why was he released? Because the algorithm said it was okay to release him. I think the San Francisco District Attorney's Office and the court has said that there was some mistake about how the clerk entered the data into the algorithm. Uh, that doesn't mean the algorithm would have changed its, uh, you know, that the result would have been different. We don't know. They haven't changed. They haven't tested it to see if it would have been any different. But the fact that this algorithm, who is, who is you know, which is entered in through trial services, which is not a body that you're going to be able to cross-examine and and examine the how the algorithm actually makes its calculation, uh, and that becomes the sole determining factor. It, it, it's a huge problem. I mean, we're we're basically saying to judges now, hey, don't worry, the computer's going to tell you what's what's right and what's wrong, and that's that's just silly. I mean, that's not why why do we have the judge then? What's the purpose of the judge? Why not save some money and fire all of those guys and just use a computer? To, uh, to do the calculation. Why? Because we believe that they actually add value to our system. Um, and their experience adds value to, uh, to our system. You know, you mentioned the fact that the algorithm doesn't uh, use race or employment history, which it, it shouldn't. And, you know, frankly, I don't see the judges I'm before uh, using those, uh, those factors as well. I don't see that much deviation between a between the race of how a criminal is treated at all. Actually, zero deviation because of their race in terms of the judges here. So, you know, we have these people here for a reason. We, you know, we give them a black robe and, and say your honor for a reason because we expect them to make judgments. Now, do I like every call that they've ever made? No. Do I think judges sometimes release the wrong people on uh, without having to post bail? Yes. I've seen it done. I've had a murder case where they, a judge released a, a defendant and he murdered someone soon afterwards. Uh, but I trust the judge much more than I trust an algorithm that no one really knows how it functions. And here's the other thing. Algorithms are great for hedge funds. Quantitative hedge funds use, use algorithms to, to, you know, place their investments and make a determination when to get in a position and when to get out of a position. 
And if their algorithm is not working properly, they have risk management tools to minimize the loss of the portfolio. The problem with this is that when an, the algorithm in the criminal justice system goes wrong, people die, like Mr. French. Obviously, the algorithm's generated score is not the sole determinant as to whether a person is, is released or not pretrial. A judge is still free to to go against the determination of the computer, but you think that it would be sort of psychologically a difficult thing for, for a judge to do, or they would uh, feel disinclined to sort of rule uh, in the opposite of what the, this algorithm has, has shown? I do, because I think that it's very hard for a judge to go against what an expert is saying. And the expert in this case is, you know, addressing up as the algorithm. And I think it's, you know, this is a great example because the judge had all the information that I'm talking about. They had, he had all the, you know, or she had all the criminal record and knew about the open probation and, and so forth. But why was this person released? Because of the score that they received on the uh, Arnold Foundation algorithm. If you could sort of sketch out your, your ideal pretrial determination uh, assessment type situation, what uh, what would that look like? I, I imagine it doesn't involve a quantitative uh, computer-generated algorithm. I think we, you know, we look at, uh, go before the judge, and we argue what the criminal history is, what the current charges are, look at the level of violence that was committed, look at the prior failure to appears, um, look at the um, look at the rap sheet, and see uh, you know what the criminal record is, and make a determination as as to whether they should be re- released or not based upon that. And let the judge make the call whether they think this person is a risk to the community or not. This uh, algorithm, it's, it's one element that of the reform movement. There, there are other sorts of devices and methods used to, to try and ensure that folks return to trial if they are released pretrial. Um, things like pretrial services, um, reminders of when they are to appear. Um, how much worth do you put into those sorts of uh, ideas? I, th- I think it's... Uh zero i don't i don't think that reminding people about court appearances is something that's going to make people come to court or not you know going to court this is a this is an important event and if we're in a society that you need to be reminded about you know coming to one of the more important events of your life then it's pretty sad Uh, i think the reason why people don't come to court is because you know we have a lot of we have a lot of individuals who are, some of them, uh, from what I've seen, the ones who don't come to court, who are released on their own recognizance, in other words, they're released without bail, are low-level misdemeanor cases where, you know, the person generally has a drug problem and is just irresponsible in general. Now, we don't have a problem with failures of peers on, in terms of cases that involve a lot of violence because those people are generally in custody and the sheriff brings them every day. But I don't think giving them reminders and little text message reminders, I'm not sure how that's going to help at all. And frankly, I think that if you can't figure it out how to come to court on time, maybe you should not be out on your own recognizance. Okay, maybe uh, just one more. The the California legislature, both houses have introduced bills that would seek to to, um, reduce the uh, significance of of money in the the pretrial release determinations, um, essentially requiring courts to do the sorts of risk analysis and then releasing folks with uh, with low 
um, scores on, on in that regard. Um, can you tell me a, a bit about this bill? I, I know it's, it claims to be modeled after the federal um, system, which doesn't use bail, as you said, but you've written that it, uh, it doesn't really do the same sort of thing that the, the federal system does. No, so it, it's really modeled after a uh, the program out of New Jersey and the District of Columbia. It's it's not uh, it's not really modeled on the federal system. So there's two, there's two bills, as you said. One is one has been defeated already. That's AB forty two. SB ten is now before the assembly, but uh, it passed the Senate. What the bill essentially does for all intents and purposes, is it, it eliminates pretrial detention uh, completely. I'll give you an example. Um, even on the most serious cases, we would now have to conduct a mini-trial before a judge to make a determination that the charges are true beyond convincing evidence and that bail should actually have to be imposed. It is a terribly written piece of legislation. It is cl- very clear that the authors of this leg- legislation did not write it themselves and had the American Civil Liberties Union write it, who's the main lobbyist group that's behind this, uh, this piece of legislation. It is very clear that anyone who has ever entered a courtroom has never, did not write this legislation. That's why judges have been against it. That's why the judge, uh, Judges Association has been against it. That's why our current uh, DA, who's a very progressive uh, district attorney, is against it. It is absolutely terribly written. One of, one of the, uh, in the very end of the, legis- uh, the legislation, it says that the criminal record of a defendant shall not be given undue weight, and that failure to appear must be willful rather than just a normal failure to appear, which is an impossible standard for us to ever prove unless the defendant came in and, and told the judge right there on the, on the stand and said, yes, Your Honor, I willfully failed to appear. Because how are you supposed to do that? So here's the other thing that, the, that, the, um, that this system does that is radically different from the current system and also from the federal system. We have to present evidence before a judge to show that the charges are true. The defendant, you know, everyone hears about the presumption of innocence, right? Oh, you're not, you're, you're, you're not guilty until, you know, until we prove the case. That's, that's a trial issue. And I know this, this is going to sound technical, like it's a technical difference, but it's a huge difference. During the trial, when we're in front of the jury, we have to prove our case beyond a reasonable doubt. But in all the pretrial procedures, they're presumed to have committed the act, except for at a preliminary hearing. So right now, when you go before a judge, the judge is supposed to look at the complaint and say, okay, there's three counts here, and he's supposed to presume that those charges are true. This system would require us now to present evidence before a judge using clear and convincing evidence that the charges are true. Now, we already have to go through something that's called a preliminary hearing. So there's two ways of charging a person, either through a preliminary hearing, which is through a judge, or through a grand jury. We have to show that we have probable cause that the charges are true, which is a lower standard than clear and convincing evidence. So this bill, written by these people, again, who have no idea how a courtroom is run, or have probably ever practiced law in a courtroom, 
wrote a bill saying that we have to prove the case through clear and convincing evidence. In other words, we have to present more evidence to detain someone uh, using the bail system than we would to actually charge someone through a judge. It's it's silly. It's it's it, 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 this is not a serious piece of legislation. It's um it's written to eliminate pretrial uh, detention. That's that's its sole purpose. It's it's not concerned with public safety. It is the entire bill is written in such a way that um, we would have to present live witnesses. Right now we have something called Proposition 115 that allows us to to use other type. Um, police officers to testify for civilian witnesses during the preliminary hearing. That provision is not grant, not put in uh, SB 10. It would um, We would have to do it in a much faster fashion than we would in a preliminary hearing. Within five days of an arrest or three days of an arrest, there has to be evidence presented in front of a judge. Again, it's a system that, it's a, it's a timetable that is unrealistic. It is unwieldy. You know, right now we have uh, probation. Uh, we have probation department. They take ten days to prepare a report. This would require a report to be written in two days. Again, it's it's like it's as though someone outside of the court system wrote their idyllic, you know, utopian world vision about how a how bail should be handled. And then the other, then the joke behind everything is, even after all of this, even after all these steps are taken, even after all these unrealistic deadlines are supposed to be met, even after the unrealistic amount of evidence was supposed to present in front of a judge in order to have someone uh, have to post bail, and then the judge makes a determination: yes, the person is so violent that they should post bail. Then they're still allowed to post bail. You're creating all this ridiculous amount of work, unnecessary, uh, unrealistic expectations, and then you're still going to release the person even though they're such a danger to society? It's insane. It, it really is a... It, it's the end of pretrial detention. Okay, well, as you said uh, earlier, there could be some avenues for bail reform, but obviously, in your opinion, SB 10 is not, not one of them, or should not be one of them. Um, we'll leave it there for now. Los Angeles Deputy District Attorney Eric Sedal. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Jeff Adachi is the public defender for the city and county of San Francisco and joins us now to present his take on bail reform and specifically the computer-generated risk assessments that non-cash bail systems often entail. Mr. Adachi, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, you have been a vocal proponent of the movement for a non-cash bail system for divorcing um, money from the decisions made whether or not to release or detain an arrestee prior to trial. Uh, it's a movement that's gathered steam at both federal and state levels. Um, what uh, what about a non-cash bail system uh, has motivated you to, to champion this cause? Why do you think it's uh, the preferable uh, way to go? Well, the United States and the Philippines are the only two countries in the world that have a for-profit bail system. And the way our criminal justice system works is that if you have money, you can get out of jail pending your trial. If you don't have money, then you're going to be in. And most people are shocked to find that 
that's how our criminal justice system works. Uh, you know, we talk about injustice for all and, and everybody should have access, you know, to, uh, to justice and fairness. Yet, uh, whether or not you're in jail is simply a result of how much money you have. In San Francisco, for example, we have people who are in custody because they can't afford a $1,000 bail or $5,000 bail. And uh, we also have uh, people, there was a, a uh, woman in the Bay Area who was charged in a double homicide who uh, comes from a family of multimillionaires and she was able to post $35 million uh, bail. Bernie Madoff was out on bail because he could afford his own security detail. So again, there's no rational relationship uh, between uh, whether a person gets out uh, other than the amount of money they have. So the idea of the movement would be to make the principal determining factor a person's risk to the public, the, the serious nature of their charges as opposed to whether or not they can afford uh, the bail? The way that our, our federal system works is exactly that. If uh, you are accused of a crime, they have an agency, which is part of the federal government, that does a review of, and it's a very comprehensive review. They look into your assets, everything you have going on with your life, employment, um, family history, uh, community ties, and they make a determination whether or not you're a flight risk. And if you're a flight risk, uh, then they can detain you. Um, but most people are released, and they're released with conditions sometimes. Uh, they have to report. And you have to make sure that they're uh, doing what it takes to ensure public safety. But you're not keeping people warehoused simply because they can't afford to pay a certain amount of money. I mean, this is, I think, a national disgrace that we have not uh, reformed the system. I've had the opportunity of traveling uh, to quite a few states in the past year talking about criminal justice reform and it's shocking what's happening in some places around the country. For example, I was in Mississippi. They have over a thousand people who have not even been charged with a crime yet, who have been arrested and are awaiting indictment and most of those people are in jail. And, you know, they're only in jail because they can't afford, in some cases, $500 bail. So this is something that we need to address, and fortunately, we're now seeing a movement across the United States, places like New Jersey, Maryland, Kentucky, um, and other states of all moving towards bail reforms. California, uh, very disappointingly, is uh, behind the pack. You, you mentioned the, the federal system as being one that, that could serve as a model for different states, perhaps including California. Our previous guest, Deputy District Attorney Eric Sadal, mentioned a key difference between the federal system and that it exists with the U.S. Constitution as the background uh, restraint in which bail is not guaranteed as opposed to the California Constitution, which generally uh, provides for bail in, I, I believe, non-capital cases, meaning that perhaps the, the, the federal system wouldn't be proper to sort of uh, apply where there was more of a bail guarantee uh, here in, in California. Um, is, is that a concern at all? Well, that makes a little sense to me. And well, it's true that you do have a right to bail. There's nothing that, uh, you know, says that we can't change that. And what I would like to see is a system where uh, a person is uh, subject to a risk assessment to determine whether or not they, they should be released, and that in all cases that risk assessment is followed. And rather than a system where just an arbitrary bail amount uh, is set. 
And in, in, in California, every county has its own bail schedule. In other words, this is a predetermined schedule of bails uh, based on the charge. And you have huge discrepancies. In San Francisco, we have some of the highest bail, sometimes three or four times as high as other counties. So it's, it's a patchwork of, of bail schedules that makes no sense. And going back to the federal system, there they have an agency, and we need to have the same thing in California, where we have an agency in every county that does this evaluation and uh, provides it to the, the, the court. Now, the judge you know, is still in a position uh, to oversee the case and whatnot and ensure that if something does go wrong, that appropriate action is taken. But you don't want to have a system uh, which, you know, is simply based on the amount of money uh, that a person has. And so, you know, I, I've heard all the objections from the district attorneys and the judges who are concerned about losing power. But what I say to them is how can you defend a system where um, access to freedom is based solely on, on money? We need to change it. If that involves changing the state constitution, uh, we can do that. Now, there's a number of bills that have made its way you know, through the, the California legislature and, um, you know, the, the most recent bill, SB 10, it was announced that it's going to be continued until next year and the chief justice and the governor as well as the legislature will continue working on it. And so, you know, we're actively involved in that effort to, um, have bail reform in, in California. What form that take will take, uh, uh, you know, has, has yet to be determined, but, you know, the, the kind of arguments I hear from the district attorneys, things like, oh, it's too expensive or, you know, it's too complicated, uh, I think are really subterfuges for the fact that they want to keep the, the system as it is. And this country now is realizing that we can't continue to go on the same path and, and claim that we're a just and civil society. If you do have a pretrial release system that centers around whether or not a defendant presents some risk of the public were he released, uh, then obviously it's important to know how you're going to evaluate that that likely risk. And, and one method of doing so is a computer-generated risk score, a computer algorithm into which a number of different variables are, are input and out um, from which spits a, a score indicating theoretically uh, whether or not a defendant, if released, would, would present some risk to, to the public. That of course, that type of algorithm is brought to the, the fore because of some unfortunate events in San Francisco over this past month where a, a defendant who had been released based at least to some degree on, on a computer-generated score is now alleged to have committed uh, a murder. And the um, I believe the prosecution in the case had, had wanted the defendant to be detained because the charge he was um, in on then was, was gun-related and he had some violent felony priors, or at least one, I believe. Um, but I, just for a moment, I'd like to set aside the, the events that sort of brought the, the risk assessment scores to, to the fore here and, and just talk about them sort of more generally. How do sure. those those scores work? And why do you, would you support such, such a tool being used? Well, a risk score simply takes certain facts as it relates to an individual. For example, how many times they failed to show up in the past, uh, things of that nature, and or their, their prior record or whether they've been to jail before. And it comes out with a risk factor which then is presented to the judge, and the judge reviews it along with whatever other evidence the judge has and makes a determination whether or not someone uh, should be released. In San Francisco, we had a case of an individual who was released uh, 
after the um, risk test said that uh, he should be released. Well, it turned out that the information that was inputted into you know, that risk score, and specifically it was the fact that he had uh, not served time in custody previously, which turned out to be incorrect, uh, resulted in a release recommendation. Whereas if the correct information was inputted, then it uh, would have recommended against his release. And he is now charged uh, in, a, in a homicide. And so that's been <coughs> cited as a failing of the risk assessment tool, which actually it isn't because it was the information that was inputted that resulted in the faulty uh, recommendation. And I would note as well that in that particular court, uh, the judge only followed the recommendation of the release tool 50% of the time. So there's nothing that would have said that he would not have not been released had the tool not been, been, been used. So the idea that that's somehow the fault of the risk assessment tool is, is simply not true. However, um, are these risk assessment tools uh, free of risk? Are they 100% a- accurate? The answer is no. I've been doing this for 34 years, and it's very difficult um, to see the future. You can't. You know, you can look at it's, uh, a risk assessment tool, and it'll give you a pretty good idea. And you know, th- these are tools that have been used in millions of cases and what they call validated, which means determined to have been correct in millions of cases, but are they perfect? No. Are you going to have situations where a person could be accused of a more serious crime after they're released? Absolutely. That's unfortunately uh, something that we have to deal with in the criminal justice system. We can't control risk. What we can do is manage it. That fact that uh, there's sort of a threshold human error here, the, the improper input into the into the algorithm makes the analysis quite a bit less less clean. But one point that our previous guest, Eric Siddall, mentioned that um, still could be s- sort of salient here is that judges will tend to defer to computer-generated algorithms bearing the trappings of, of science and authority, um, perhaps even in, in instances when they shouldn't, when they should use their own judgment or the advisement of the prosecution or uh, defense in a particular case. Um, does this case, do you think, um, underscore that concern that judges might come to just defer or rely unduly upon this risk assessment score, which, as you describe it, is sort of one tool among many in determining a pretrial release? Well, like I mentioned, in this particular case uh, where the young man was released and uh, is now accused of a homicide, in, in that particular courtroom, the judge rejected the use or the recommendation that the uh, pretrial assessment tool uh, provided. In other words, the tool said yes, release, and the judge 50% of the time said no. So, you know, they, they don't always follow it, and often they reject it. It's simply a tool that is used in conjunction with other information about the accused. For example, we will file a bail motion as public defenders of arguing for a client's release and setting forth facts about the background and other things that the the you know defense wants the judge to consider, and the prosecution will come forth with whatever information they have. So it, it's it's not as if you know there's a, a, a computer that tells the judge what to do, and the judge follows it. I mean, there's a, a process which involves advocacy from all parties. I mean, it, it, we do work in an adversarial system where the district attorney represents the. The, the victims and we represent the individual and we uh, advance our arguments and uh, a decision is, is reached. 
What we're saying, however, is that the process by which a person's release is determined uh, is corrupted by the fact that it's based solely on, on money. And that rather than have money bail, that the court should examine uh, objective factors and if the person is not a, uh, a risk, uh, they should be released. And again, the primary purpose of even setting bail is to ensure that the person is going to come back to court, right? We do have a presumption of innocence in this country. And because of that, uh, we should not be incarcerating people unnecessarily. And we should not be incarcerating people simply because they don't have, have money. I mean, there are, are millions and millions of cases in the country that are heard every day. And the reality is that for most people, if you don't have money to post bail, you're going to be in jail sometimes for months or even years awaiting your trial date. And that's what we're really talking about here. And of course, you're going to have some uh, uh, cases where a person's released and, and commits a crime. That happens. It happens, um, you know, from time to time, and it's tragic. But we can't legislate our bail system and keep everybody in jail simply because we're afraid that someone's going to do something if they're released. One more about sort of calibrating properly the any computer-generated algorithm that would determine a risk assessment score. You, you wrote for a newspaper, I believe, last year, a couple of concerns that you had about the algorithm that San Francisco uses, one being that it could be overly conservative in its scoring, suggesting that an RSD might be more dangerous than, in your view, uh, is merited um, for a couple of reasons. And also, you mentioned one way in which it might not altogether be race-neutral, which is sort of one of the selling points, I take it, uh, a computer algorithm devoid of any human biases that might uh, be possessed by by courts or judges. Um, well, what were your concerns there about the, the system? Well, the tool that we adopted in San Francisco uh, was promulgated by the Arnold Foundation, which is a group that did a bunch of research on it and came up with the with tool. And it's not dissimilar from other tools that are out there. The concerns that I had uh, with the tool, even though I think it is a vast improvement from money bail, is that it relies heavily on a person's you know prior uh, arrest record. And the reality is that uh, particularly African-Americans and people of color have a lot more interactions with the criminal justice system because of race. And it doesn't uh, consider that in, in determining that. So uh, it's going to result, I think, in more African-Americans and people of color uh, being uh, recommended uh, you know, for detention and, and, and not for release. The other concern that I had is that it categorized certain crimes as violent crimes when they really shouldn't be like assault and battery those are you know not violent crimes you can touch somebody and 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 be found guilty of an assault and so you know it's not a perfect tool but it's much better than money bail and you know we've been tracking every case and you know 99% of the cases it's been spot on and uh you know i i i i think that we have to be very careful in accepting arguments that simply attack uh, pretrial assessment tools without offering uh, any uh, cure or alternative. You know, when I hear the district attorneys and judges say, oh, we need to keep it the status quo because of this or that, I ask them, what is your alternative? And it's often met with just silence because what we're trying to do is, is create a system where rather than posting bail, uh, the judge looks at assessment uh, 
uh, tools uh, that accurately predict uh, a person's success on their release. And we have a lot of other tools that we can use. We have electronic monitoring, which is very advanced, where they can track your every movement. We have, um, you know, programs that people can be engaged in if they're addicted to drugs. So there's alternatives. And remember that incarceration is very expensive. We have 2.2 million people in this country behind bars, and the price tag is huge. In California, we're spending more money on incarcerating uh, people in excess of $10 billion a year than we are on higher education. We've built a dozen prisons in the last 10 years and only one university. So, again, this is something that I think it's time has come and we need to uh, to do something about it. I was in Sacramento at a rally uh, for bail reform uh, earlier last week and there were 25,000 people there. Now, granted, many were there to see Common and J. Cole and some of the artists who were performing, but, you know, it, it was phenomenal uh, to see that kind of support. It's not just two options here, right? You could you could move from a cash bail system to a system that does not include cash bail, um, but still not include something like a, a computer-generated algorithm relating to risk. You could uh, just simply uh, assign the court the responsibility of determining whether a defendant or arrestee was released or not, right? But it's the idea that you want to use as many tools as you can have at your disposal to, to make decisions like who should be detained and who should be released? Yeah, but the idea of, of money bail, the fact that a person is going to be kept in jail until they post a certain amount of money, uh, that practice has to stop. Our office was the first California uh, public defender's office to bring a lawsuit in federal court. We had a client who was at a Thanksgiving dinner uh, there was an argument which erupted into a fight and she was arrested on a domestic violence charge. Uh, her bail was, was set, I think, at $150,000. She posted, uh, 10% through a bail bonds person, uh, gave $1,000 and signed a note for 14000 The case was dismissed the next day. Well, she's on the hook now for $14,000 plus up to 10% interest. Uh, on that, and so she's going to be making payments for the next four or five years. That's not right. You know, we don't have a justice system that discriminates against people. But when it comes to bail, it, it, they certainly do. Uh, all it depends on is how much money you have, and so it's an indefensible system. There are a lot of good alternatives out there. You know, we're never going to have a perfect system where. A person's, you know, risk could be, uh, uh, predicted, uh, with 100% accuracy. You know, there's the, there's the science fiction movie, uh, Minority Report, where they have people who could see into the future and know before a person's arrest whether or not they're going to commit a crime. Well, we're not there yet. So it's the best that we can do is to, uh, use best practices that are out there, tools like, uh, pretrial assessment tools. Uh, and common sense to reach uh, decisions that are based on rational facts, not on the size of a person's wallet. 
as someone that has pretty vocally championed bail reform now in in the wake of some tragic events in, in your, your city, have they caused folks to perhaps voice their concerns and, and their thoughts that maybe the status quo should be cleaved to? What 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 has your response been? Is it, as you've been saying, that there's, there is no perfect system and that, that tragedies like this could happen in this system, they could happen in, in really any system? What have your responses been to, to concerns? I think the public overwhelmingly supports bail reform and i've seen the shift and we, we we were talking about bail reform five years ago and no one was interested and what i've seen in the last you know two years is a tremendous uh, outpouring of support for for changing the bail system i think it's due to black lives matter it's due to criminal reform efforts around the country um, and the fact that it's just becoming more publicized, that people know about this now, and um, you know whether you've had any contact with the criminal juvenile justice system or not, uh, the, the concept of uh, you know money being the indicator of whether a person is released pre-trial uh, seems so fundamentally unfair. I mean, you have celebrities involved, like John Legend, Jay Z wrote an op-ed on bail reform uh, for Time magazine, you know, we're seeing sort of a cultural uh, shift in how people see criminal justice reform as being one of the leading issues, and really a bipartisan issue. Senator Kamala Harris and recently put forth a bill with uh, Ron Paul uh, to create a measure that would essentially allow jurisdictions around the country uh, to move uh, away from uh, money bail systems. And so, you know, what we're seeing today uh, is this resurgence of interest in bail. So, I, I you know, in, in terms of people who would criticize it, um, you know, what's your alternative? If we don't have, uh, if we continue to have a money bail system, we're going to continue to have a justice system which at its core is rotten. And you need to have a system where people feel that it is fair, that you're not going to be discriminated against because you don't have money. You know, that's what bail reform at its core is really all about. And so we don't want a justice system where a person can buy justice. And that's exactly what we have now. We mentioned. Briefly, Senate Bill 10 in the California legislature, which has been, been tabled for the time being, but it's a, a state-level um, effort towards bail reform. Um, our previous guest had some concerns about it, sort of maybe they were twofold, it seemed to me, one being that in his view, a measure like SB 10 would really intend in and seek to do away altogether with any pretrial detention. And I think also he was concerned that it would require a higher burden on prosecution to sort of prove up cases more than um, is feasible at an earlier stage. And you've written also that the Judicial Council, that judges have some concerns about legislation like this. What are some of the, the biggest attractions that, that you've heard against this sort of legislation? How do you respond to it? And how do you see um, this uh, type of, of movement at the state level as this type of, of legislation moving forward? Well, at this point, because the governor has indicated that, that he will be involved in, in bail reform, I think that it's it's fairly likely, and he's stated this, that there will be a bail reform bill next year. The question is, what will what will it do? And I'm concerned that it just becomes lip service, where you know they take 
a number of, of crimes and cases where a person would have been released anyway and simply say, okay, you know, these people don't have to post bail. Well, that's not reform. I mean, a true reform is going to have to put something in place to replace uh, money bail. And right now, I think the best practices in science indicates that pretrial assessment tools are the way to go. Maryland has done it. New Jersey has done it. Uh, every state that is uh, passing bail reform is relying on some kind of pretrial assessment tool. And in California, I, I think it makes sense to let every county develop its tool. Now, the other question is pretrial services, that you want to have some kind of service system available so when people are released, they can be monitored and uh, they can have people to report to. Uh, and, and uh, for example, in San Francisco, we have that. We have an agency that provides that that support, and they're very successful in getting people back to court. Now, the argument that's been made by the DAs and the judges is that's too expensive. Well, it's actually cheaper than keeping people in in jail. If you keep a person in jail, it's about a hundred to as much as two hundred dollars a day, and so you can find alternatives that are are cheaper. Um, but there has to be funding uh, to support that. So, I mean, there are a lot of questions that still need to be answered, and, you know, we're certainly going to be leading the charge when it comes to advocating uh, for uh, the replacement of money bail altogether. Okay, well, it certainly seems like an issue that is, is not going away anytime soon, so I'm sure we'll, we'll hear more from you and, and folks that are part of this movement on, on, on either side. Well, one thing is very important is that if people are passionate about this issue they need to let their elected officials know and uh, for some reason in los angeles there are quite a handful of elected officials who have either not shown up on bail reform or haven't taken uh, a uh, consistent position uh, so they need to know that people care about this issue so if you do care about bail reform let your elected officials know that's the only way that uh, we're going to be able to create true reform uh, Jeff Fidacci, public defender for the city and county of San Francisco. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. With that, our show for September 8th, 2017 is complete. Thanks once more to both of my guests, Eric Sadal and Jeff Adachi, And thank you for tuning in. It's much appreciated. You may note that in between my conversation with Mr. Sadal and the airing of this episode, Governor Brown has tabled SB 10 for the year, so we won't expect any statewide bail reform in this legislative session. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.